Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture by the spectator world. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm here with Amber Athey. And we're also joined by Josh Hammer. He's an editor at Newsweek and a legal expert. And we're going to be talking today about the overturning of the Roe v. Wade decision at the Supreme Court and everything that's transpired in the meantime. This was the Dobbs case. It is one of the biggest Supreme Court cases, perhaps the biggest Supreme Court case uh, of its generation. And it's a six to three majority, technically really a five to four majority, decide to overturn Roe v. Wade. This is a huge deal. It's been the goal of the pro-life movement for decades now. It's been a major goal of the conservative movement for decades. Uh, I think a lot of us dreamed that we would never see this day, but but here we are. And And the fallout has been immediate and rapid. The left is devolving and losing its mind. Uh, the right is, I think, jubilant, but there's still a sense on the right that you know we're not quite sure where we're going to go from here, what comes next. Josh, I, before we get into the legal details of it, I, I'm curious just for your reaction when you heard this c- come down. Were you just elated? Were you popping the champagne or were you a little bit more cautious? How did you feel? Well, first of all, it's great to be with you guys on this momentous week. I mean, this is by far the biggest Supreme Court decision of our lifetimes. I, I I don't even know what would be second. I mean, probably the DC versus Heller decision, the gun rights case from 2008, but I, I, arguably you might say the NFIB v. Sibelius Obamacare case, but I mean, this is it. I mean, like you said, Matt, this has been the goal for the pro-life movement, for the conservative legal project, for so many wings and facets of the broader right of center coalition for decades. So Really incredible. I, to, I mean, just to take us back to the morning that the opinion was announced, funny enough, I was actually in the middle of a guest lecture for Saurabh Sharma's American Moments Group, where I serve on the advisory board. I was giving a lecture on my common good originalism jurisprudential project to their summer fellows. And, you know, I just saw like I, I had my laptop on, uh, you know, do not disturb, but I saw like my Twitter feed exploding. And then we kind of learned in real time with the fellows that this opinion had just dropped and we kind of just you know immediately shifted gears a little bit but look i mean probably my biggest number one immediate in the moment reaction was wow they really stiffened their spines and they actually saw this through because you know i wrote a piece for the spectator about uh, the leaker and how we haven't discovered who that person is yet which is crazy but in retrospect, they really saw this through. I mean, in an alternative universe, they easily could have capitulated in this uncharted waters, you know, re- intimidation campaign culminating in a literal, thank God, a finally aborted assassination attempt against a justice. I mean, this this really could have gone a different direction. So thank God they stiffened their spines. That was probably my very, very first immediate reaction before kind of diving in a little bit more. Let's talk about the leak for just one moment before we get into the details of the decision, because, you know, there's this issue of it was suspected that it came from a pro-choice clerk, right? That was the the assumption that they were trying to blow up the institution because they knew the court was going to overturn Roe v. Wade. But then there was this other alternate conspiracy theory that started making its way around Twitter, that this was actually one of the conservative clerks who was worried that one of the justices was wavering under pressure from John Roberts. And this was a way of kind of freezing the moment as it was, trying to humiliate whatever justice was wavering back onto the right side of this. Do you think it's now clear that it it was in fact the first, it was a a pro-choice leak? And how how intense was that pressure, right? I mean, I'm sure Roberts was going after these justices with everything that he had. So I'm not sure it's clear. I mean, I should say it won't 
be definitively clear until we know who the leaker is and until the leaker is publicly exposed and shamed as a disincentive for this never happening again. And that really should happen. It is wild to me that that we do not know yet. And, you know, I, I've seen some friends kind of go on conspiratorial, uh, you know, ideas about why we don't know yet. I'm kind of sympathetic to some of them, to be honest with you, because it really is just truly bizarre. We're not talking here about a particularly large sample size of people. From day one, I have said time and time again that this is pretty clearly coming from a liberal justice chambers. I mean, it never made any sense to me whatsoever. The conservative leaking to solidify and lock in the majority. I mean, that's like that's 70 chess. That's that's way too cute by half. You know, in a, in a situation like like this, Occam's razor is usually correct. I mean, the most straightforward explanation is is going to be proven correct. And here, you know, I, I, again, like you alluded to, I mean, this assassination attempt for the leaker, that is a feature, not a bug. So, yeah, I mean, I think the dire depth and breadth of the depravity that we saw over the next month, month and a half after the leak, obviously culminating in this assassination attempt, that does buttress the idea that it was a liberal pro-abortion leaker, but we probably won't definitively know until they expose, which I just really hope happens. I mean, I feel like I'm like shouting into the abyss. I mean, I, I would tweet last week, like, am I like the last person who like, cares about this issue? I mean, like, it's it's really important. I mean, like, we, we can't just forget about that, that, that this major thing happened. I'm completely with you. I think it's absolutely crazy. We don't know. Um, like you said, not a particularly large number of people to investigate, particularly when you consider who actually had the connection with this Politico reporter and was able to actually get that leak out to that outlet. But let's talk a little bit more about the decision itself. And one of the reactions, even from Republican Susan Collins and sort of moderate Democrat Joe Manchin was this almost shock that they would overturn a Supreme Court precedent. And I think really a misunderstanding from them of what the justices were actually telling them in their confirmation hearings, which was not that this is precedent, therefore we're not going to touch it, but this is precedent, therefore we take the potential of overturning it very, very seriously. So it's important to talk about precedent and stare decisis here. First of all, uh, Joe Manchin and Susan Collins, I, 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 with the caveat and the acknowledgement that I was not literally privy to those conversations, I, by definition, was not in the room, I have to imagine that they, charitably speaking, misinterpreted or misheard what they heard not charitably speaking, are just spreading lies. Because there is just simply no way whatsoever no way whatsoever that any judge would ever go into a meeting with a U.S. senator and promise to uphold a specific president. First of all, judges don't opine on precedents. They opine on what Article Three of the Constitution refers to as cases and controversies properly before their court or they have jurisdiction and the parties are properly filed, whatever. So by definition, it is totally premature to opine on a case or controversy before the specific facts of the case and the parties are standing there in that tribunal before the judge. But second of all, what I can totally imagine that, you know, then Judge Kavanaugh, then Judge Barrett, then Judge, then Judge Gorsuch said, and they had public statements in the San Judiciary Committee hearings. This effect was they basically said, look, Roe versus Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. These are precedents of the court, just like any other precedent. And yeah, I mean, each judge, we have our own approach to stare decisis. Justice Gorsuch of the current justices is actually the closest to Justice Thomas's view of stare decisis. And to kind of be a little overly simplistic here, he effectively does not believe in it. I mean, when the Constitution commands one thing, he would just side with that full stop end of story. 
But all the other justices, especially Kavanaugh and Barrett, they, they do not actually agree with Thomas and to a lesser extent Gorsuch on that. They do have a more middle ground position. Justice Scalia in a 2009 case called Montejo versus Louisiana laid out these four factors that he would that even he looked for in Star Decisis about like the workability of the precedent, the reliance interest, things like that. And even Justice Alito, who wrote the lead majority opinion in Dobbs, I mean, he works through those Star Decisis factors. So this is just this is just judging. I mean, like we have tests in place that judges can do to determine whether a precedent deserves to be upheld. And I guarantee you that, you know, if I can just try to summarize what Kavanaugh or Gorsuch probably said to Senator Collins or Manchin, they probably said, Senator, Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Case is a precedent of the court. We have various tests for how we treat precedents of the court, and I would have to wait for the facts of the case to come before me to opine how to treat a given precedent with respect to a given set of facts. So to the extent that they're saying that these judges lie, I have to assume that they are most likely just lying themselves. Yeah, and then can you get into the dissent as well? Because one of the things that the dissenters say is that they believe Roe struck a balance um, between women's autonomy and protection of fetal life. And just reading through the dissent, and particularly that portion, almost struck me as uh, just irrespective of reality. Um, I mean, the fact that you even have a law like in the Dobbs case coming before the Supreme Court shows that that balance is out of whack because there have been court cases about relatively mild restrictions on abortion for years now. So Roe v. Wade came down in 1973 on the same day as what lawyers would refer to as a companion case called Doe v. Bolton, where the cases were decided together and they should be read together. And the combined effect of those two readings, Roe v. Wade is one that gets talked about all the time because it was the one where Justice Harry Blackman talked about this purported constitutional right, which we now know, thanks to the Dobbs case, is no longer actually a constitutional right. But the other case, Doe v. Bolton, talks or it has a lot of language, and the Supreme Court itself, as well as lower courts, read the combined effect of the Roe-Doe abortion regime as effectively guaranteeing abortion up until birth if the woman's mental health you know, was discretionarily deemed to be so volatile and so at risk that she required that. That has been how Roe and Doe combined are interpreted. Now, Roe, strictly speaking, talks about this trimester setup where states can you know, regulate in the second trimester. Then Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, 19 years later, effectively ditched the trimester framework in favor of this viability standard. But the courts continued to read, even after Planned Parenthood versus Casey, this viability standard with that backdrop of the Doe versus Bolton case that, again, in state after state, would allow these states to allow abortion effectively up until the eighth or ninth month of pregnancy, as long as the woman had a purportedly genuine, even not just physical health, but mental health concern. So the reality is, as conservative commentators and politicians have said for years and years, the post-Roe, post-Doe, post-Casey, and we should say now pre-Dobbs, uh, abortion regime in America was one of the most draconian abortion regimes in the world, literally up there with the likes of China, Vietnam, North Korea. I mean, not exactly the world's foremost human rights bastions. And Josh, let's talk about this concept of rights in, in the context of what you just said, because it's always very curious to me. We keep hearing that 
the right to free speech is not absolute, right? And they, they bring up uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, in my opinion, very overrated fire in a crowded theater exception. Uh, the Second Amendment is certainly nowhere near absolute. They're not as keen, the left is not as keen on the right to due process anymore the way that it used to be. But somehow these rights that are nowhere explicitly stated in the Bill of Rights, the right to an abortion, the right to contraception, the right to gay sex, somehow these are taken to be untrammeled, right? These are supposed to be rights. No, you cannot come between a doctor and a, uh, a woman at most throughout most of the pregnancy under the regime that was established by Roe, as you just laid out. It's almost like the left, like progressives created this alternate constitution that protects primarily sexual rights rather than what we would think of as civil rights or as constitutional rights. And I know Clarence Thomas took a swing at this in his concurring opinion, you know, going after the idea of substantive due process. Can you talk to us about this a little bit, that this whole kind of, you know, alternate constitution that's been created that that protects primarily your sexual privacy and little else? Yeah, it's almost like they're making it up as they go along, isn't it? I mean, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean if, I, if, 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 if I were if I were a cynic and wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I am nothing if not a cynic, um, although a little less cynical right now than I guess I was one week ago. But yeah, look, I, you can go back. What happened was there was a real progressive revolution on the court in the early 20th century, particularly really in the 1930s, and there's a famous footnote. So I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm taking a step back in time a little bit. I remember my 1L year at the University of Chicago Law School when I had just started there. You know, I was a day one Federal Society member. I'm still a car carry member today. But I went to the introductory speech for ACS, the American Constitution Society, which is kind of the liberal-leaning uh, rival jurisprudential organization that was formed effectively to rival FedSoc. It was it was formed, I think, in 2000, 2001, during maybe the late Clinton, early Bush administration. It, it's a far smaller and uh, it's just, frankly, just less impactful than the Federal Society is. But I went to the introductory meeting in UChicago Law and the faculty advisor at the time, he probably still is today, was a guy named Jeff Stone. And he alluded to a 1938, I believe is the year, case called Caroline Products, which is kind of a quintessential FDR New Deal era case. And there's an infamous footnote four in Caroline Products. And footnote four of the Caroline Products case refers to, quote, discrete and insular minorities as kind of being like a, 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 a locus, like a real kind of touchstone that progressives on the court should look to and to go out of their way to protect. And I think for the last now nearly 90 years, we have effectively seen the footnote four-ization, if you will, of the progressive justices in America. To this day, it was no accident that Jeff Stone in that introductory speech at the ACS thing, you know, nine years ago, whenever I was there, talked about this. That is still what they believe. They go above and beyond. They believe it is their mission to protect whatever they subjectively deem, quote unquote, discrete and insular minorities. But to your point, Matt, not to lose the forest for the trees here, I cannot emphasize enough to just say, I'll say this very straightforwardly. It is patently absurd to read the United States Constitution, to read the Bill of Rights, and conclude that it does not secure a, an individual right to keep and bear arms, which is 
very clearly laid out right there in the Second Amendment, but it somehow secures a quote-unquote right to privacy from the penumbras, from the emanations. That's what Justice Douglas wrote in the Griswold v. Connecticut case of 1965, let alone extrapolating that so-called right to privacy to the Roe v. Wade regime of a literal right to abort your unborn child. So it's insane stuff, but from my mind, it really all dovetails from Caroline Products footnote four going back to the New Deal era, actually. That's so fascinating. And, you know, of course, the hysteria now is that they're going to come for your condoms and your birth control pills next. And actually, last time we checked in with the Republican Party, uh, Joni Ernst and I think it was Cory Gardner were trying to make birth control more easily available over the counter. So that just isn't completely at odds with what is actually happening in the real world of politics. But, um, but, but Clarence Thomas went there. Right. I mean, he called into question Obergefell. He called into question Griswold. He called into question Lawrence. Uh, Do you see the court taking this logic even further and maybe wiping out that so-called right to privacy and and overturning some of these other cases? It's really remarkable to me, first of all, that this fairly short concurrence from Justice Thomas, I think it was like literally seven or eight pages or something like that, that it's getting this much attention. This is nothing that Justice Thomas has not written for the past 30 years. I mean, he has been remarkably consistent that so-called substantive due process is oxymoronic. It is not there. It is fabricated. It has the practical effect of resulting in, you know, in the arrogation of power to what Hamilton told us was the, was the quote unquote least dangerous branch that would result in judicial despotism. He's, he has said all this for literally decades. So I, I, I'm really kind of baffled that the left yet again, now 30 plus years after the Anita Hill nonsense during his confirmation hearing, is yet again doing what, you know, what Mayor Lori Lightfoot in Chicago is doing with this F. Clarence. I mean, just disgusting stuff. I mean, Hillary Clinton basically calling him an angry black man. Just God, uh, Clarence Thomas, in my mind, literally the single greatest living American and the left can, you know, uh, you know, take its criticism of him and do you know what with it from, from my perspective. But in any event, what, what he is saying here in his concurrence, you know, I alluded to kind of stare decisis earlier. Um, I, I guess I'll make a shameless plug here. I, I, wrote, I wrote an essay for National Affairs in 2020 entitled, quote, Overrule Starry Decisis, where I break down Justice Thomas's concurrence from the 2019 Gamble versus United States case, which is his most kind of fulsome explication that he's ever given of his own views of stare decisis. And I basically arrived at the conclusion that he's effectively correct. Um, I, 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 there's very little daylight, between, if any, between my view of it and his view of it. And Justice Thomas, is, again, has been remarkably consistent on this. His, his basic view is that stare decisis in a common law system of judge-made law makes a heck of a lot of sense. But in our constitutional order, where the supreme law is the constitution, treaties pursuant thereto, and statutes passed pursuant thereto, that is what the judicial oath of office is to, not to the court's precedents in a 5-4 court that may or may not be correct. So in this concurrence, he's merely saying that because substantive due process is an oxymoronic constitutional doctrine under the 5th and 14th Amendments, and because stare decisis compels us to follow the actual constitution and not precedents that are erroneous subsequent to the constitution's ratification, then we should overturn cases like Griswold, Lawrence, and so forth. Now, it was an admirably principled and intellectually consistent concurrence. It's worth noting that not a single other justice joined it. I mean, not, not even Neil Gorsuch, who, like I said, is the closest to Thomas's views on stare decisis, not even Gorsuch joined that concurrence. The other thing to bear in mind here is that the Supreme Court has a discretionary docket. They, they, they hear very limited cases. I mean, it's fewer than 100 in any given year. They, they, you know, uh, they, have a, they have a limited 
uh, pool of cases where they have mandated original jurisdiction, but the overwhelming majority of their cases are appellate jurisdiction where they have discretion over what cases they hear. That's the whole filing a writ for cert uh, process. So the court can hear, again, what it has. So first of all, you probably will never get someone file a case anytime soon, even in a deep red state, trying to challenge Griswold. It's just not going to happen. I mean, what does that, what, what does that plaintiff look like? I mean, like, like, who, like who is that litigant out there? Second of all, even in a hypothetical world where that lawsuit gets filed and is probably quickly dismissed by lower courts, there's just no way you're going to get four votes on the Supreme Court to even take the case. So, you know, for for better or for worse, and again, like I said, I, I agree with Justice Thomas. I think overturning wrongly decided cases is an intrinsic good unto itself. It's just not going to happen for better or for worse. I wanted to ask you about the cry from some on the left. I heard it particularly from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I know we shouldn't take seriously, but alas, she is a elected member of Congress, that the court has determined itself to be illegitimate and that they need to go about actually trying to impeach these conservative justices. What exactly is the process for removing a Supreme Court justice? Has it ever happened before? And what are the what has to happen for that to be considered a serious endeavor? I mean, obviously, deciding a case in a way that the left doesn't like should not be considered a reason to impeach a justice. But let's let's say we're taking you know AOC and the left's arguments seriously, and they actually are going to go forward with this. What would that uh, scenario look like? So you are allowed to impeach a Supreme Court justice. You're allowed to impeach a lower court judge as well. Um, the constitutional text if I recall correctly, in Article 3 of the Constitution, basically says that judges shall hold their office, quote-unquote, during good behavior or something to that effect. Michael Stokes Paulson, who's a professor at University of St. Thomas Law School and is probably one of my very favorite constitutional law scholars out there, he has done a little bit of research and basically concluded that, quote-unquote, during good behavior in Article 3 effectively has the same meaning as the, quote-unquote, high crimes and misdemeanor impeachment criterion from Article 2 in the presidential context. But as a practical historical matter, judicial impeachment has not happened in a very long time. If I'm not mistaken, the last justice to be impeached was Samuel Chase, who was impeached, I think, in the Thomas Jefferson administration. He was like a he was a fairly partisan member of Alexander Hamilton and and uh, and John Adams's Federalist Party. So the Jeffersonian Democrats did not particularly like him. He ended up being acquitted by the Senate. I, I'm racking my mind kind of here. I don't think I remember a subsequent judicial impeachment, at least on the Supreme Court since then. There have probably been some lower court impeachments over the years here. I mean, look, realistically speaking, I mean, I guess I guess they can go ahead and try. I mean, putting my cards on the table, I, I'm sure that if you kind of go back and look at my tweets, whatever, over the years, I'm sure that I have called for the impeachment of Sonia Sotomayor numerous times. I think that she's, a, I'm sure, I'm sure that, I'm, I mean, she's like a ridiculous left wing MSNBC talking head hack. I mean, she is barely even purporting to do law up there and I would impeach her tomorrow. So I guess what's goose for the what's good for the goose is good for the gander to an extent. But there's very little precedent for this. I guess I should say, from a purely academic standpoint, that is a powerful tool that Congress probably, unfortunately, has let die off over the years. So in a healthier republic, it would probably be a good idea to resuscitate that tool, which is an important tool in Congress's checks and balances arsenal. But again, they've just let that you know, they've let that muscle attenuate. I mean, it's kind of just died over the years. So I'm not sure it's going to come back anytime soon, no matter what AOC seems to say. Hey, Josh, you use the phrase healthy republic, um, which we don't seem to be right now, unfortunately. And I can't, 
help but think there's a, well, we, we still ought to be annoyed with Justice Anthony Kennedy over this because if this decision had come down and Roe had been overturned in 1992, 1993 with the Casey case, then we, it would have been in a healthier republic, right? I mean, it was more peaceful back then. It still would have been very contentious, certainly, and it would have touched off a culture war, but it wouldn't have been the way it is today when everybody is already so frenzied and there's so many challenges that we're facing at the moment. And it is, it's my one brief note of hesitation over this verdict is that it's like another you know, grenade thrown into the pool, into the unsettled pool, right? I mean, it, it's, this is going to cause a culture war that's going to further tear us apart. Um, and we've already seen a, a rash of lawsuits at the state level. They're now suing in like Louisiana and Texas, trying to say we can't have these trigger laws in place because actually the state constitutions allow for abortion. And, and so you're already really seeing this pick up. Where do you see the fight going from here? And, and how bad do you think it will get? Well, I guess the fight from here, I mean, is obviously going to be on a state-by-state basis. I mean, the best pro-life law in the country right now is a very recent law that was just signed by Governor Kevin Stitt in Oklahoma. It's, uh, I mean, it's effectively uh, Oklahoma has declared that life begins at conception. And the enforcement mechanism they borrowed from Texas, from Texas's SB8 statute, where, the, where, it's, a, where it's a civil enforcement mechanism – um, you know, which got litigated in Texas all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the court basically said that Jonathan Mitchell, the former Texas Solicitor General, who effectively kind of goes through behind the scenes, a Texas statute, oh, he's like an evil genius. He's discovered this loophole. You know, Jonathan's a friend, full disclosure, and he definitely is something of a legal genius. So that is the best pro-life law in the country right now is Oklahoma's. And, you know, I think I tweeted out in the aftermath of the Dobbs case, that should be the model for other red states to follow right now, is declaring that life begins at, at, at conception. Obviously, will be limited dispensations for the, you know, life of the mother, obviously, that goes without saying, I would hope. But, uh, you know, and the enforcement mechanism for this, similar to what Texas did last fall, should come from the civil side, which effectively immunizes it from large swaths of kind of leftist judicial activism and and, and nonsense. But look, to your broader point about, you know, civics and democracy, this is kind of a trite or banal thing to say, but the left's reaction and how quote unquote undemocratic this most democratizing of decisions actually is, <laughs> is right. nothing if not humorous to me, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it reminds me a little bit to kind of make a foreign analogy when Viktor Orban won like his third or fourth term with Fidesz back in Hungary in, in early April, the left were like, oh my God, democracy is at risk. Well, how is democracy at risk if the voters literally just vote for something, right? <laughs> and, 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 and like, so, like similarly speaking, like how is democracy at risk here when the Supreme Court says that the states with their very different set of cultures and religious traditions and values and so forth can make their own determinations about this literal life or death issue. So it is a fundamentally democratizing decision. And, you know, the left says, quote unquote, our democracy, we have this, these January 6th committee hearings going on that are purportedly about our democracy, but they're obviously kind of speaking it one way out of their left cheek and in an entirely different way out of their, out of their right cheek. Yeah. Uh, Josh, one last question. I'm curious about this project you have going on. Uh, common good uh, sorry, common good constitutionalism, right? Is the name of it? So my my, my project is common good originalism. Originalism, Adri excuse me. A Adrian yeah. Vermeule is a little different, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. But but so you and Adrian Vermeule have criticized the doctrine of originalism on slightly different grounds, but fairly similarly, saying that it's not good enough, right? It, it doesn't have enough of a moral center. It's not necessarily getting us where we need to go. And feel free to correct me if I'm mischaracterizing it. But now that so-called originalist judges have tossed out Roe, and have done the right thing in this case. 
Um, where, where does your movement go from here? How are you going to continue to critique originalism going forward? So my criticism of originalism is, or the originalism status quo is definitely milder than Adrian's. I mean, as, as, but, as but one key difference, uh, you know, I call myself an originalist, albeit a, a, a slightly skeptical originalist of the status quo. And I have uh, this this project that I've devised. I don't think Adrian would, well, I actually know Adrian would not call himself an originalist. Although his recent writings, actually, I do think, I do think take him a little closer to my position than perhaps he would readily conceive. But that's a conversation for another day, perhaps. But Look, the Dobbs decision, what it did was it effectively got us to the Stephen Douglas popular sovereignty position that he famously said on the stump in 1858 in his kind of Illinois statewide debates with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Back then, you know, Stephen Douglas said that slavery should just be kind of an up or down issue for the states. And that basically is what the Dobbs decision did. Now, that's that's an unfortunate analogy to make to the extent that it besmirches the Dobbs opinion, which is worthy of celebration. It's a remarkable achievement, but it is only a remarkable achievement. And I wrote this, of course, for The Spectator just recently, where um, you know I think the, the, the title was uh, Why the Alito Opinion is, quote unquote, too normie or something like that. So the Dobbs decision is absolutely worth celebrating, but it is worth celebrating as a means to a further end, as a necessary precondition to a further and more fully just end. And, you know, just as America could not ultimately survive half free and half slave, that's Lincoln's House Divided speech also in 1858, so too will America, from my perspective, not ultimately be sustainable, where an unborn child, for instance, is protected by the rule of law in a state like Texas or Oklahoma, but is simply not protected in a state like California or Oregon. So what do we do about that? Well, you know, a bunch of us are, 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 have, have been for years, I should say, have been making the argument that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause properly construed actually does get you to constitutional personhood because persons under the, under the Equal Protection Clause were understood at the time of enactment to be natural persons worthy of respect. So put another way, a state's homicide statute under this understanding of it cannot unjustly discriminate by solely protecting the class of human beings who are born but discriminating against the class of human beings who are unborn. So this is kind of the new fight in the pro-life movement. And I think my Common Good Originalism project kind of fits into this nicely because while that 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause personhood argument is I think it is correct on a purely kind of historical legal positivist inquiry, the likes of which has kind of informed the conservative legal movement to date. It is much easier to arrive at that conclusion on what I refer to as common good originalism grounds, which would effectively just tell judges, tell lawmakers, tell executive branch actors to effectively put their thumb on the scale of the substantive justice that is the end of the American constitutional order. So that is kind of the intersection between kind of the future of the pro-life fight and my, my, my jurisprudential side project as well. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com.